welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. <laughs> um, well, welcome this morning. Um, I wanted to start with kind of a dumb dream that I had last night. Um, so I had this dream that I left my sermon notes in the bathroom downstairs. And Micah had to come up and like divert the entire gathering so that I could, you know, there was a line, I had to wait. Um, And I came up and uh, trying to get my mic on and everyone's waiting for me. (laughs) And I go to open my sermon notes and lo and behold, they're in French. (laughs) And I like, I have this vivid like moment in my mind where I'm like, all right, here we go. Je m'appelle Jenna. <laughs> so anyways, I have nightmares before I preach. There you go. <laughs> um, anyways, but if you're just joining us, we are uh, in the book of Colossians. We have been for the last couple weeks. Um, and if you have been around, we've been having some really big theological conversations. We've uh, talked about what the Bible is and Jesus and the gospel and um, the role of spiritual practices Uh, in the midst of a life of faith. And this morning, we're going somewhere totally different, um, but equally important. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 3. Um, We're in verses 1 and 2. And stand, if you are able, for the reading of the word. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Pray with me. God, for eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, um, the word that you have prepared, uh, that I have prepared, would you come underneath it and bring it to life? God, I, I ask for a remembering this morning of who you are and of who we are, that you would restore the forgotten things that we would know that you are doing a good work in us. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, so I wanted to start this morning with an observation um, based on some of my experiences of texts like this. So I am a product of evangelicalism, for better most days and for worse some days. Um, but we love passages like this. And I want you to imagine with me, maybe if you came from a tradition like me, uh, let's say you're having a hard time and you're in a conversation with a friend and you're, you know, kind of trusting them with your story and the response you get is, have you considered the words of scripture? Have you considered that maybe you just need to set your heart and mind on things above? Is that, like, have you thought about that? Um, so I don't know if any of you relate to a thing like that. Um, but friends, that practice, though well-intended, and be it far from me to not appreciate a good word in the midst of um, hard things, but as it relates to biblical interpretation or the discipline of hermeneutics, that's a practice we like to call proof texting, where you take a passage or a group of passages and you isolate them, take them out of their context, and then you present it, usually to uphold your own argument or the argument of someone else, and possibly make the text say something that it's not actually saying. 
And this happens everywhere. It's not just with the Bible. It happens in the media. It happens when we quote historical figures. It happens when we quote current figures. And yet, when it's the Bible, it just feels like higher stakes. Right? Because for many, the Bible is connected with God. Like it's a source of revelation for the nature and character of God. So I don't know if you remember, I said earlier, as I like started telling this story, I was like, I should have fact-checked this, because this was from a long time ago. Um, but I don't know if you remember, um, there was a high school in Texas, and these high schoolers were preparing for their homecoming game, and all over their signs, they wrote, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? This is a great example of proof texting, right? Where, you know, at its best, it's innocent and it's fun and meant to be an encouraging thing for the high school game. Um, but at its worst, it can do some real damage. Because if we just take that example, uh, first of all, you are totally trivializing the reality of the original hearers whose lives were at stake and Paul was attempting to encourage. But second, if you take the theological assumptions that are being made about those words and place it in the context, what they're assuming is that if we win this game, God is with us. But what happens if you lose? Does that mean that God isn't with you? Right? And that, that's an untrue thing. It says that God is always with us. And so... To be clear, I know I'm totally overstating this. I think, you know, these high school kids probably didn't enter a faith crisis if they lost, like wondering where God was, um, although it is Texas, and they love their football. Go Longhorns. <laughs> probably the only sports reference you're ever going to get out of me. Um, and, but this is a practice that, that happens often, where we take something out of its context and, and make it say something it's not meant to say. It's how you can justify things like slavery using the biblical text, where you do this practice and, and you do it in the name of God. And so hopefully you're starting to hear my point that how we read this book, the way we understand passages, really matters as it relates to our theology, or said differently, our assumptions about who God is. And those assumptions inform our practice. And so, uh, you know, and this is like what biblical interpretation is. In part, that's what the Bible is for, is we read it, and we interpret, and we make assumptions about it. It's just, we have to be careful that when we do it poorly, you can create some really bad and damaging theology. And I'd like to submit uh, this morning that we do it with passages like this too. Where when we take these, these two passages talking about earthly things and heavenly things, we forget that Paul is actually in the middle of an argument. That these two sentences are actually transitioning uh, based on what he said before. He's transitioning now to a new thing where he talks about our lives being hidden in Christ. And if we miss that, I think we can come to some really untrue conclusions. Um, when we read this plainly, one of the conclusions we can come to is that earthly things are bad and that heavenly or spiritual things are good. This was some of the critique that Micah was laying out week one 
about how sometimes, if you come from a culture similar to mine, like when we read passages like this, it can create a divorce in our understandings between the physical world, like our bodily selves, and spiritual things. And historically, I think that comes from the Puritans. God bless them, but you know. <laughs> I don't think you'd be learning about the Puritans today. Um, but also some, some parts of evangelicalism uh, that see physicality as a threat to the holy. Because physical things are coated in death and decay and can't be trusted because they're products of sin. And so I think it's important that likely the majority of us, whether we know it or not, have some of that forming how we approach the text. And it can be really easy to read that in uh, to these two verses, that heavenly things are good and that physical or earthly things are bad. And if we come to that conclusion, we're totally missing the fact that with this letter, Paul is actually addressing that very assumption that was very prevalent in the ancient world. Uh, it's the Gnosticism, again, we talked about that week one, where it says spiritual things good, physical things bad. And so today, we're using this passage and this conversation that we're having, where when we make these theological assumptions that create a divorce between the physical and the spiritual, and elevate the spiritual above the physical, uh, we're using this conversation really as a launch pad to talk about something a little more specific. And I wanted to talk about our theology of the earth, our theology of creation, and our theology of human relationship to the earth. Now for me, it hasn't been since these last couple years that I really even thought that that was a thing. That like my relationship to the earth is theological. Like I grew up in public school and learned about recycling and I learned from my grandpa that you shouldn't litter. Uh, God bless him. We uh, had this cabin like three hours up north, mile into the woods, no electricity, no running water. And grandpa used to like drive us along the highway for miles. And we would like make us get out, pick up all the garbage, throw it in the truck, and keep going. Um, <laughs> I told, okay, I'll let it go. I told a story about Trevor first hour. Okay, well Trevor, when he was like four, he was real. he's my brother, just to be clear. Got it. <laughs> Name that relationship. When he was like four, he was deathly terrified of ants, hated them. And there was one day where Grandpa was making us do this, we bring this huge tarp in, and it is covered in ants, covered. And so Trevor is in the back with thousands of ants, like crawling all over, losing it, and my, I'm in the front seat, and my grandpa's like, sit down, you don't know what you're doing, just losing it. It's really good. Yeah, he was standing on the seat. It, it, was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> Trevor has a traumatic memory. <laughs> um, but anyways, so <laughs> I don't know why I told that. Felt right. Um, but the point is, is that like, these are some like, habits and things that I picked up along the way, but it was never theological. It was never something that I thought like, God had anything to do with. It was just what you did. 
And you couple that with, with other assumptions that I picked up along the way, saying that physical really doesn't matter that much, like spiritual is really important. And so, you know, I don't know, the earth is just here uh, for humans, and that, that was pretty much the extent of it. In a book entitled Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, which is basically a native perspective of ecology, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer provides a pretty sharp critique of Western Christian understandings of the environment. And as she opens the book, she talks about creation stories and how creation stories provide for people groups an identity or orientation to the world. And what she does is she takes Eve of the biblical text and Sky Woman of the Iroquois, and she says this. They, cosmologies, or these creation stories, tell us who we are. We are inevitably shaped by them, no matter how distant they may be from our consciousness. One story leads to the generous embrace of the living world, the other to banishment. One woman is our ancestral gardener, a co-creator of the good green world that would be the home to her descendants. The other was an exile, just passing through an alien world on a rough road to her real home in heaven. And then they met, the offspring of Sky Woman and the children of Eve, and the land around us bears the scars of that meeting, the echoes of our stories. Ouch. Friends, if you are at a point in your journey where you can really hear the outside critique of something that you hold dear, you, we, will be better for it. But do you hear what she hears in our story? A divorce between the physical, the earth that we inhabit, and our ethereal distant view of heaven, where when it all comes down to it, we will be removed from this place and moved to our real home. And friends, she's not totally wrong. Now, I, I think like how this has played out practically and where her critique is coming from is exactly the practice that we talked about earlier, where there are theological misunderstandings around certain verses where we put a ton of weight around them and build an entire theology without taking into the account like the entire biblical narrative and what it says about human relationship to the earth. And so I want to look at two passages that do that, um, although there are many. Genesis 1.28, uh, immediately after humans were formed in the image of God, the text says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue is really that key word there. In Hebrew, the word is kavash. And literally, it means um, to force, to keep under, to subdue. Uh, and elsewhere in the text, it's, it's translated enslave. Oh, like, how do you tack yourself out of that one, right? Um, now, most commentaries like think that that is a very inappropriate translation of that word there to use enslave, um, and that this is what one commentary said that I think is relatively generous, um, that human relationship to the earth is to harness uh, its potential and use, it, use its resources for our benefit. 
Now, that could be used to say something relatively neutral, and, and in part, there, there are really true things about that. Like, the, the earth does provide resources to us, and it does care for us. Uh, it, it's intended for human flourishing. And yet, I think practically how it's played out is maybe we've read and lived out the enslaved translation of that. Right? Where humans work the earth no matter what, no boundaries, for the sake of human progress, because humans have all dominion and authority over this place. Right? And the second passage is 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And again, if, if you read this passage and you do the proof texting thing and build a theology around it, we can come to the assumption that when it all shakes out, everything is going to be destroyed. Absolutely, like affirming her critique, right? That this place is going to be burned up and we're going to be removed. And if that is the theological assumption that we have about human relationship to the earth, there is little or no incentive for humans to actually see their role as uh, responsible for its flourishing. Right? So you pair these theological assumptions with the cultural context in which we live, capitalism being one of those things, which is inherently profit-driven, and you get urban sprawl, You get oil conflict, you get overworking the land, introducing foreign species and chemicals to produce more, massive amounts of waste, all of which have had major environmental effects. And now, to be clear, I'm not saying like, well guys, let's get rid of all modern conveniences, go back to the basics and walk everywhere and use our wood-burning stoves. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that I'm affirming and I'm noticing that the earth is in crisis and humans are largely responsible for it. And Christians have contributed to it, myself included. Do you want to know what I never recycle? Peanut butter jars. I hate it. Grosses me out. That thing can sit all day and it is still in there. Does anyone agree? Peanut butter jars are the worst. I throw it away and I put garbage over it so my roommates don't see. What are you going to (laughs) do? But the point is, is like, even though that's minor, um, and yet, like, we participate in this. But I think a lot of it has to do, if we were really generous, a lot of theological misunderstandings, but also, we've just forgotten. We've forgotten a certain part of ourselves that's core to our identity. Um, As I've kind of been elbow deep in research um, and reading all sorts of things, I came across a piece um, that makes a case saying that part of human identity is that we're ecological beings. That as humans, we are created uh, relationally. We're to be in relationship with God. We're to be in relationship with the other. And we're to be in relationship with the earth and the land in which we've been placed. And our relationship to that earth is is one meant not only for benefit, but also for care. 
And I think when you look at our lives, we're so detached and disconnected from this reality. Like, sometimes I forget that there's even earth underneath concrete, you know? And we've forgotten that the earth is sacred because it was made by God and it was called good. And we've forgotten Genesis 2.15 that says humans were placed into the garden to Eved and Shemar. Eved is the Hebrew word for work, and Shemar is the Hebrew word for protect or to guard. That inherent to being human, we are entrusted with the responsibility of working and protecting the place that we have been given by God. That we, as humans, have a different kind of agency, and we are co-laborers with the divine to make this place flourish. Just like the Iroquois. They just maybe played out their theology a little bit better than ours. And we've forgotten that when God formed a people for God's self, God told them, this is how you are to relate to the land. You are to work it for six years, but on the seventh year, let it rest. Let it heal. And we've forgotten about the significance of the incarnation, that when God became a human, God did not only fully embrace humanity, but God embraced all of creation. That a few weeks ago when we talked about Colossians 1 where it says that Christ is the head of all creation and Christ is reconciling all of it to himself. That includes the place that we live. And we've forgotten that Revelation 21, when a new vision of heaven and earth is given, or said differently, when the new order of things comes, it's actually heaven that comes down to us. And that God will make all things new Friends, the scriptures declare it. And the living God behind these words tells us, remember, remember this part of who you are. The ones that I have entrusted to work and protect this earth that I have called good, and it's meant to be your home. So do this in remembrance of me. As you have likely guessed, I am leading somewhere today. Um, but I wanted to tell a story and let you in a little bit on how I lead. Lucky. Um, one of the things that I oversee at Awaken um, is mission. Uh, and if you've been around or if you've looked into that part of Awaken, you'll notice that we're not like a lot of churches in the sense that there's not really a buffet for you to choose from. Uh, there are a handful of things that, that we put a lot of time and energy into and want to do it really well. And part of that has to do with capacity, but part of it also has to do with um, discerning, like, what is God stirring in this community? What is in our hands? And let's do those things. Um, I am a firm believer that even though I am a decision maker in this community, I'm not the only one who gets vision. Uh, in fact, most of you get it before me. And that my job as a pastor is to see where that stirring is and what's happening in the hearts of my people. And so, about a year ago in the spring, one of our, one of our youths uh, came to me and said, you know, I have this senior project and want to do a community garden and what would that look like? And, you know, it was May, so it was a little late. Um, but it was just a, I guess, seed planted. No pun intended. <laughs> um, and then a few months later, Maria Damas 
came forward. If, if you read your emails, she's in there sometimes talking about our storm drain that we adopted. Um, but she uh, came to me and said, like, I don't know if you know this, but there's a grant that you can apply for uh, that provides all the startup costs to implement organics recycling and regular recycling. So I don't know if you want to do that, you could. Uh, and have you ever thought about creation care more or something like a community garden? And I was like, huh, yeah, okay. And more people kept coming with just thoughts and suggestions. And as I sat with it and um, was really asking the question this past summer, like, what does mission look like in this place and what do we have? This kept coming up. And it just felt like this community has walked through some hard things in the last year and a half, and um, we're intentionally putting heavier things in, in front of you, conversations around race and human sexuality and refugees and asylum seekers. And for some of us in the room, that can feel really heavy and debilitating and like, what am I supposed to do about this? And it just felt like, God, it would feel really good to just do something physical and to like plant a garden and to start to implement practical things and then invite other people into it with us. And so friends, welcome to your new missional invitation. <laughs> Creation care. Um, and I, I'm so excited about it. Uh, what we mean by this is that we want to be more intentional about our mission statement at large, which is partnering with God in the renewal of all things. And as we think of it extending to this, it means that we want to become people who restore. People who restore our relationship with the land so that it can flourish. And so that we remember this part of our identity as ecological beings. And so when we talk about creation care and environmental justice, it's yet another giant thing to put in front of you and say, care about this. Um, so we wanted to keep it really simple. Um, and this first year, we want to look at food. Um, my guess is that, like me, many of you have not really thought of like food as having an environmental impact. Um, but apparently it does. Uh, but we chose this for a couple reasons. First, we all eat, right? Second, most of us really love food. And number three, it's actually not that difficult to like look at our daily habits around food consumption and it really matters in terms of the environment. So low-hanging fruit, full disclosure, um, most of us are fortunate enough to eat every day, and so, again, it probably doesn't lead to a whole lot of reflection around food. Um, and so today, I'm not going to throw a ton of information at you and outline all of the intricacies between food and environment, but I will say this, that everything from how our food is produced, whether it's farmed or imported, to what we eat, to what we buy and the demand that it creates, so the food that we throw away has some sort of environmental impact. And so if we just take food waste, for example, and look at it very simply, 40% uh, of the food that Americans produced is thrown away. 40%. The average person throws away 400 pounds of food in a year. All the while, 
14% of Americans, about 48 million, experience food insecurity, 16 million of which are children. And what happens to that food is that it goes into a landfill and it decomposes and it produces massive amounts of methane and greenhouse gases, which is one of the leading factors of climate change. And so I'm not trying to like throw a bunch of statistics at you and evoke an emotional response and get Sarah McLaughlin queued up in the back. Uh, call now. <laughs> um, <laughs> save the animals. Um, but what I am hoping and thinking is that, like, we could do something about it. We could actually, in the grand scheme of things, maybe isn't that difficult to look at, like, our habits and to maybe ask God, like, what could this look like? And, you know, to make it even easier, I have a whole team of people that have made a whole bunch of opportunities uh, for us to participate in. So... I wanted to outline some of those things and what all of this looks like in the next few months. And we wanted to start with something like relatively fun. Maybe it's just fun for us, but I feel like it'll be really fun. And through the month of March, we want to invite you to participate in something called the Zero Food Waste Challenge. Uh, and it's exactly how it sounds, but our hope is that what this would do is really to create awareness um, around what food waste looks like in our lives. And, and I will say, this is a no-shame zone. Um, sometimes, like, when we start to look at these things, you can feel a little, ugh, squirmy about it. Um, but this is really meant to be a learning opportunity. Um, but we also want to reduce our food waste. And so your adventure, should you choose it, uh, is to sign up. I'll walk through some of, like, what you're actually going to be doing. Um, so week one is just noticing uh, when food waste happens, what are the circumstances around it. Um, week two uh, is when you begin to implement the change. So we're going to resource you with a whole bunch of things. Um, not overwhelming, though. Um, things like clean out your fridge. Take inventory of your pantry or your cupboards. Um, we'll give some meal plan templates and uh, some recipes for those of you who like to cook. For those of you who don't like to cook and you eat out, what are some best tips and practices around how to eat out and reduce food waste? Um, for families with kids, like this is a whole other beast because you have very little control over them. Um, and so, We can be honest about that. Um, and so, like what might that look like? Um, week three is maybe a reminder of why we're doing this. Um, and then week four, like, you can't totally avoid food waste, especially if you cook. Um, and so what are some alternative options? And we're going to talk about composting, which if you live in Minneapolis, they have curbside pickup. Super easy. Um, and then week five is just uh, some reflection on it. Um, the other thing we wanted to acknowledge around this is that, like, changing habits can actually be pretty hard. And I think especially food consumption looks pretty um, distinct depending on what life stage you're in. And so our idea is that we would really love to connect just small groups of people, no more than six, geographically and based on your life stage, uh, and to utilize that as a means of support uh, to process some of this, to share tips, uh, things that have worked for you. Um, if 
you wanted to do something like a meal exchange and, and do that with your group. Or uh, if you have overbought spinach, can I get an amen? Um, to throw it out to your people and say, like, we're not going to eat this. Would anyone use it? Um, but also, you know, you might like the people that you're <laughs> connected with. So maybe you'd make friends too. Um, so that's kind of what we're thinking. If that sounds like death to be connected with strangers, you can just select content only, and we will respect that. Um, so I'm really excited about it. My team has worked really hard um, to create really good content for you. Um, if you do want to sign up, you can either put your name on a sign-up sheet in the back. Otherwise, throughout this week, you can just go online. Um, and then finally, I, I wanted to outline some of the things that are coming. So uh, March is this challenge. April, we're going to do a cooking class for um, like cooking with foods in season. Uh, and then May, we're doing a community garden, um, which will be really fun. So if you're interested in participating with some of the building and prep um, or maintenance throughout the summer, that'd be great. Um, so that's what we're doing. I'm really excited about it. And just a reminder of why. Uh, we want to be the kind of people that are aware of how our theology informs our practice. We want a more full and embodied understanding of what God invites us to in the co-laboring with the divine, in the renewal of all things, and that includes the place that we live. And so, as we transition to a time of response and silence, uh, I'd like to invite the band up, um, but we're gonna take a moment to pause and maybe, in that silence, um, to think about this question, God, what are you inviting me to with this? So, pray with me. God, thank you for the gift it is to live here. Um, for the beauty and provision that you have given to us through what you have made in the earth. God, I ask that you would um, give us an imagination of what it could look like. So be with us. In your name we pray. Friends, receive these words as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.